Hey, welcome to the Biology Brief, now episode seven. I'm Kylie. I'm the CEO of Oleolive. This is Jim, the CTO of Oleolive. And Oleolive is a biotechnology company that studies a lot of different diseases. One of the main things that we look at and are focused on day to day are neurodegenerative diseases, specifically Alzheimer's disease. And we thought we would take this episode and explore Alzheimer's disease in a lot of detail. It's something Jim and I talk about a whole lot from pathology to symptoms to drug development associated um, with Alzheimer's disease, the entire spectrum of it, how it's gonna affect the healthcare system, um, how hard it is to get a, a drug approved for Alzheimer's disease, why there haven't been many approvals in the past 20 years, maybe one, two, very few, outside Denepazil and then then the the monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, that's, and that's all. That's the most recent one, yeah. And, and you're talking about um, disease-modifying therapeutics being most recent. The other ones are simply modifiers of symptoms. And well, what you say or you say the the monoclonal antibodies are disease modifiers, but are they? Or are they just biomarker reducers that seem to have a bit of an impact? You're just jumping right into it. I like <laughs> that's that. That's what we're doing. Let's jump right in. Yeah, we need to define what Alzheimer's disease is, and you're jumping in the monoclonal. Okay, antibodies. all right. Let's define what is Alzheimer's disease. You tell me. Well, in my mind, and the hypothesis that we've taken to Alzheimer's disease is Alzheimer's disease is type three diabetes. That's what I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna stick to that as my gun. And type three diabetes being an irregularity or irregulation of the metabolism in the brain. The inability for the brain to process glucose in an efficient way, therefore creating a vicious cycle of inflammation, protein buildup, tau entanglement, which eventually results in you know uh, the, the end of Alzheimer's disease because you die. And you actually, and I, I like the way you're doing this because you're jumping right into the meat. We haven't even had the vegetables. I like we, that. We lot. don't have to have. We, fact, this is not just, a lecture. Let's just start with the dessert. This is not a lecture. This um, is this is something. So you brought up a couple interesting things. One, the the disease Alzheimer's was actually a guy named Doctor Alzheimer, and he first came up with this idea in 1906. And the driving force for many years, and this is some of the dangers of science, is if you get on one horse and another horse and you're riding it. The other horses are sort of put the pasture. So the driving force were the accumulations of aggregates of proteins, one called amyloid beta, and one Could they measure the proteins back then? No, in, in autopsy, yeah. So they would do brain slices, and then they would, stain, they would see these aggregates. They didn't know what it was, what mm -hmm. the protein was, but that was one of the defining features. And it still is the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease are the accumulation of these proteins. And so tell me about the accumulation of the proteins because, and, and I think I have a full understanding of this, but tell me if I'm wrong. So basically on the ends of the neurons is where they'll, they'll have aggregation of proteins, therefore limiting the neurons ability to interact with each other. That, so localization is important. These, now these, these aggregates of proteins, let's take uh, amyloid beta as an example. These uh, aggregates are throughout the, the nervous system, but yeah, they can be right next to the, the nerves themselves and they can affect the um, basically lifespan in the nerve. They can be very toxic to nerves. And we'll talk about this. Mm -hmm. the, these proteins may do other things that, that aggravate inflammation. But I want to go back to what you said originally. There's two antibodies that have been approved. One is uh, aducanumab and the other one is um, Lecanemab. Lecanemab, yeah. yes. And those are the two recent approvals in 23 and now 24. There's a fourth one by Lilly, Donatumab, that's going to be approved probably in the next six months. Um, what's interesting is 
the, there were no approvals of, of disease-modifying therapeutics for 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. These are the first two. And, and on mm -hmm. the surface, one might think, this is unbelievable. This is a huge breakthrough. And it is in a way. But yeah. we're talking about um, as Alzheimer's progresses and you lose cognitive function, you can measure that. What these uh, antibodies do is they decrease the rate at which you lose those functions. They don't change the functions. They don't make you better. Mm -hmm. They just make you less. So worse. they're not disease modifying. They're symptomatic. No, they're, they're actually symptom no. Well, they're they're no because they're actually impacting one of the proposed causative agents of of Alzheimer's, which would be amyloid beta. And my point in that is, so amyloid beta went from this falling off a cliff, and so many studies with monoclonal antibodies preceded these two mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. now marketed. Uh, and they failed miserably. And so for the longest time, people were going to give up on, on amyloid beta, and now they're not. Now you're seeing uh, more and more companies starting to pull out from the freezers some of their mm -hmm. monoclonal antibodies. We'll get into this more detail because this is going to be, as, as we'll talk about, a lot more therapeutics, I think, going to be much more impactful. So that, that's it's interesting that amyloid beta, uh, you don't want to call it a conspiracy. It's somewhat referred to as a cabal sometimes in that it was apparently the the biomarker associated with the disease it still it and still is every drug yeah. had the target of reducing amyloid beta in some form or fashion for a decade decade and a half and and keep in mind that be, uh, be, uh, amyloid beta is a very small peptide that is cleaved from a much bigger protein and there's proteases that actually do that and there were also drugs being developed and antibodies being developed to prevent that from happening. And all of these were massive failure. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't really improve the symptoms. They didn't. They basically scored zero. Now, looking back on this, um, some of the problems are, were early on the designation of what patient should be in a clinical trial. The minimum would be what? They have Alzheimer's disease. Sure. Unfortunately, sure. their diagnostic ability to be able to put them in that category was more limited than it is now. So I think part of the reason these drugs are working is you're now really getting people with um, amyloid beta because you can't really test for that. Well, let's explore that for a second because that's an interesting point in that if you were to do a clinical trial on Alzheimer's disease and you have a few endpoints, endpoint number one may be improvement in cognition in some form or fashion, whether it's through any of the battery of tests that, that kind of are used to, right. to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. One of the other things that you would do is PET scan. And whenever you PET scan, you may look at amyloid beta and you can use it as a relevant clinical endpoint to improvement of the disease. You can accept the, the, the it's not cost effective. It's not that accurate. Um, no, but what I'm saying, regardless of cost and regardless of accuracy, if it was built into the clinical trial protocol as a, as a marker that was relevant, then all of a sudden that becomes something that everybody else begins to shoot for. And that, well, that's exactly right. So the first thing in, in uh, aducanumab, which um, we, <laughs> the whole podcast could be on this one, why did it actually get improved when the subcommittee but a majority of them said, no, it shouldn't be approved. There's a lot of reasons why a patient advocacy was one of them. There's so many patients that are getting Alzheimer's. In fact, up to 6 million in the U.S., 50 million worldwide, the patients are going, where are the drugs? And so this, this uh, antibody came out and it was like, well, it, it was pretty clear it cleared 
uh, amyloid beta, mm -hmm. up to 90% from the brain. So mm -hmm. you can do PET scan for that. So that's a good biomarker. But, you know, the efficacy stuff, it's like, well, I don't know. But that, that opened up the door and the other two, that one on the market and one that's coming out, uh, reduced amyloid beta levels, and they mm -hmm. do seem to have an effect on the loss, the slowing the loss of cognitive function. So um, you write about the cabal or the mafia because for the longest time, any alternative hypothesis or any other... Uh, it didn't get funded. It didn't get funded because that, that you know, and that, that's something, again, I, you know, it's one of the peculiarities and, and of science. We, we had the scientific method, and we did try not to be purist about that, but in the scientific method, you don't want scientists to go, well, wait a minute. Uh, I don't think this is going to work, but there's a lot of money there. But yeah. scientists are human, and politics gets involved. And, and I, maybe the good news is people stuck to that model long enough that I think uh, it could be effective. We're going to talk about this later. but Well, it might be effective long term. But as, as we've seen and as we're beginning to understand our hypothesis of the disease, I don't want to act like we understand the disease. We could be wrong, too. Ultimately, everybody could be wrong. It is a very complex disease. It, it, and obviously because it's in the brain but it seems as though like one hypothesis will gain some traction and then it'll fall to the wayside and then another one will gain some traction and then it'll fall to the wayside it's like where do you eventually find the the pathology of the disease that works and is treatable and how do you begin to find it it's it's uh it's very very tough i think what you said was kind of key it's it's complex and and what that doesn't mean necessarily is it's not going to be understandable but what it does mean to me are there are many different factors and pathways that are involved in progression. And what that really comes down to, and something we're going to hammer home, is I don't think any single treatment will be totally effective. You're going to see multi-modality approaches mm -hmm. to the treatment of Alzheimer's. So why do you think that is? Because I think there's so many different pathways that are involved that any single one, let's, amyloid beta. Mm -hmm. So you can get rid of all of it, essentially, and yet the patient still progresses slower them with with the amyloid there but mm -hmm. still the patient progresses well i think so that's, other things are contributing to that other yeah. than amyloid beta. well i think that is part of the validation of saying well it's an, irregu an irregularity of the metabolism in the brain and saying even if you have this downstream effect of what i'll call an, an, a dysregulated metabolism dysregulated neurometabolism even if you clear that off you still have a dysregulated neurometabolism I, you're exactly right so it's um I think the future is going to be a combination of drugs. And, of course, in our system now, um, you're going to have to have company, biotech company or pharma company A talking to B saying, let's get together and share some stuff. That's easier said than done, but mm -hmm. I think that's going to be, for, for Alzheimer's, for cancer, for a variety of diseases, that's going to be the, the, the so nature of the treatments. One of, the, one of my favorite statistics about Alzheimer's, and I might be off by a few percent, but roughly – 80% of Alzheimer's patients have type 2 diabetes in some form or fashion. Is that right? Do you remember that statistic? Not exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's, I think you're right. In a general way, the probability of having um, Alzheimer's if you have type 2 diabetes is much higher than you have. No, look at it backwards from that. The probability of having type 2 diabetes if you have Alzheimer's. So therefore, not oh, saying yeah, yeah, type yeah. two That's is the, the cause. Yeah, well, it actually. But it could be. Yeah, I think. Well, there's a connection. So. Yeah. That's why it's called type 3 diabetes yeah. in, in the brain. And I think that's been much more widely adopted even yes. since we've been. So we started, prob started looking into it from that. 
viewpoint in 2019. Yeah. And we've seen it become more and more accepted. We did not discover that, nor do we claim to discover that, nor do we, like, that's not our idea. It's just a hypothesis we bought into about four years ago. And it, it seems as though it's gaining in a lot of popularity. Um, now the GLP-1 agonists that we've been, that we talked about a few episodes ago, are being looked at for treatment of Alzheimer's That's disease. That's exactly right. Um, you know, we've, there's a lot of the glitazones and TZDs, you know, mm-hmm. they've been tested in Alzheimer's disease. They had their weaknesses because they're toxic. Um, there's, there's a lot of, of things that are lending itself to believing that is a, a cause. And also it leads to a lot of neuroinflammation, which also seems to have a strong, strong correlation to the disease itself. Yeah, so I think, you know, as, as the science of understanding Alzheimer's progresses, we've learned more and more about some of the, uh, the uh, pathways that, that drive progression. And so we've gone way beyond, in fact, we'll talk about this in, in just a little bit, but there's a, um, a Alzheimer's disease drug development pipeline. It comes out every year, and this is from this year, about the new drugs that are being developed. This is 2023. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what you see, and I have it right here, so if you look at... Um, changes in uh, look at drugs that are now being used in a phase three trial mm-hmm. and there are basically 15 small molecules being used in a phase three trial mm-hmm. most of them still by 19 percent of those drugs are still targeting uh, amyloid beta 19 percent 19 percent and the big shift if you look at a phase two and just to remind the audience the first trial you do in, in clinical studies are phase one trial. Mm-hmm. That's mainly safety and dosing. Phase two, you get some clinical efficacy. Does the drug really work? You do a little more uh, pharmacokinetics. Phase three is sort of the gold standard. Is the drug really going to work on a larger scale? Is it safe, et cetera? So phase three, looking back, those are the most advanced drugs so far. And it still has amyloid beta targeting drugs and includes antibodies at, at 20%. So it's, just as an aside, just quickly, mm-hmm. do you... I'm, I'm still have my tinfoil hat on. Are those people, are, are those companies, those 20% attacking amyloid beta because there's no, there's an eventual registration there? I, th- I think it's a combination of, we've been studying this drug now for nine years. Oh, and the, the door's open a little bit. We're going to keep studying it or let's pull it off the shelf. Yes, I, th- I think it's, there's going to be a bandwagon effect to getting people to, to look at that. Right. But I think more importantly in, in, in looking at this, if you look at the, so for instance, we, you talked about metabolism. In terms of, of uh, drugs that are being used and tested now, there are three uh, in a phase two, which are mm-hmm. what's coming up. That right. will soon be a phase three, hopefully. There's five. If you look at inflammation, and this is important because we're going to talk about inflammation. Yeah. In the phase three studies, there are only two drugs in phase three. Mm. In phase two, there's now 17. Really? Yeah. So, so we're a, seeing the, the wave begin to come up. You're seeing a huge increase as people mm. begin to reflect on um, what things drive progression, et cetera. They're starting to recognize, as we're talking about, whether mm. it's metabolism or inflammation or neuroplasticity or oxidative stress, they're starting to recognize that we need to be targeting those. So yeah. in the phase two, what you're seeing is, in, and it's important to, to remind the audience again, that, that in a phase two, these drugs have passed a phase one. Oftentimes drugs don't get out of a phase one, which means they, they didn't meet um, safety standards or they had side effects. They caused some sort of adverse event. Correct. And we and talked about adverse events maybe in our first podcast. Yes, I, I think, yeah, so that, and, and again, that's a, that's a clinical trial, so it'll be an interesting podcast to do because they're, they're flavored and, 
and patient recruitment, and, and as many of you know in, in the audience now, there's a, a problem with, it's not a random selection of patients. So historically, African Americans have been understudied in clinical trials, and all races are a little bit different in terms of how they respond to therapeutics. So this is a, a huge issue, but it's beyond. Uh, and also to that point, since we're wandering, <laughs> we are wandering. The, it, the patient selection in clinical trials is really important specifically for Alzheimer's disease because you, you, you kind of work your drug up to a point and whenever you're working your drug up to those clinical trials, you look at different types of, of mice that may have different genetic mutations so you can inform your clinical trial selection to give yourself the highest likelihood of success. And so you may, you know, drugs may begin to target these very specific genetic types, whereas uh, a, speci uh, a portion of a population that has this disease may be underrepresented naturally by the way the drugs tend to work. Um, it, it's, uh, it's really a fascinating thing because you're all, like in our, in our situation, we're trying to give ourselves the highest likelihood of success, always. Why wouldn't we? If we were trying to create this broad drug that works for everybody, we, it would never happen. And so you may have some natural bias in your research just due to how your drug works, and, and drugs may tend towards this point anyway. That's a, that's a great point. So in fact, um, many clinical trials, historically clinical trials, let's say in lung cancer for specific drugs, Tarceva, um, as an example, uh, the drug or, uh, um, what is it? Genfitinib, I think, I but know. this drug, this drug, uh, early on, didn't look like it was going to work at all. Only 20% of the patients responded, mm -hmm. and what they did was went back. Well, why did those patients respond? And they found that they had a mutation in a particular receptor. Mm -hmm. So, patient selection is key, and we're going to talk about biomarkers. So, I think these trials are getting a little more fine-tuned. And you're exactly right; it's called personalized medicine, and we will do a podcast on that. Mm -hmm. Where historically, oh, you, we think you have Alzheimer's, you're going to go on a trial, right? As a opposed to um, you have Alzheimer's maybe. Now there's, there's some very interesting, uh, because historically the gold standard is plaques on your brain. Well, who's going to volunteer for a trial and then be euthanized to see if they fit the trial billing? Yeah. So now there are um, blood markers that are coming out, both for a, a beta amyloid or amyloid beta and also for phosphorylated tau, which is another protein that can form aggregates that mess up neurons. How, how does phosphorylated tau tie into the, the pathology of Alzheimer's disease? It's the other, it's the other hallmark, and, and again, the, the data is not totally clear. It's usually thought that that amyloid beta is the first predictor. So if you could watch patients, even called prodromal, they don't really have symptoms, but they're on the pathway to be getting Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. They begin to build up amyloid beta. That's After, the first thing that you begin to see. That's usually the first thing you, you, would, you would see, and especially in animal models. And then phosphorylated tau, it's a, it's a protein that uh, helps to regulate the structural integrity of, of proteins called microtubules. Think of microtubules as the highways in the cell. And neurons are really, really long stretches of highway. Mm -hmm. And they need to move uh, lysosomes and other organelles to and fro the cell surface to help with the process of neurotransmission. Mm -hmm. So imagine the highway got bombed and it's totally disrupted. Phosphorylated tau forms fibrils that mess up the highways, mm -hmm. and, and uh, that has an impact. So those mm -hmm. are the two biggest structural observable things you can see. So those were the original think of it as hallmarks for yeah. Alzheimer's. Yeah. But now the other ones you're talking about, they're coming the full bore, and as I just talked about, a lot of the drugs are gonna to begin to target those things. So I wanna I want to talk to you about 
about type three diabetes and let's talk about like the cycle that is type three diabetes and how does that seem to, to, to work? And, you know, just to be clear, type three diabetes is not an official disease. It's just uh, it's just what right. we're beginning to refer to as Alzheimer's disease, as we spoke earlier. But, you know, how would you how would you begin to characterize type three diabetes? You know, you you have reduced or or irregulated glucose uptake in the brain, first thing, and then how how would the the cycle generally play out from there? So, um, metabolism historically and obviously for people with diabetes, they understand the importance of metabolism. But that goes beyond simply regulation of glucose. It also involves regulation of things like lipid levels. Uh, that's also very important. So when you're saying uh, a, a lack of regulation or a metabolic dysregulation, let's mm -hmm. say, that includes obviously glucose, it includes lipids, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So um, what percent of the glucose you have is, does the brain need? Probably half. Well, no, maybe your brain. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you uh, know. <laughs> mine only requires like 20%. Is it 20%? It's, okay. But it's still, that's a lot. So yeah, the yeah. brain needs glucose because think of all the activity of neurons, and that yeah. requires the generation of the energy currency called ATP. So yeah. glucose in general gives rise to that. So one of the things that happens, and insulin's involved in that. And insulin's found in the brain, and insulin also can help regulate the uptake of glucose. So in a diabetic, you have issues that include increased levels of glucose in the circulation, implying that muscles and adipose tissue and the liver itself can't take up glucose very well. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you're becoming uh, resistant to insulin, let's mm -hmm. say, or you're not mm -hmm. producing as much insulin. The same thing carries over then into the brain. So one of the biggest things, as you mentioned in, in, in uh, Alzheimer's patients, is their inability to regulate glucose effectively. And so they rely on other energy sources. And the lack of glucose and, and insulin resistance often is driven by inflammation and that's been known for decades in the body now it's being known in the brain so neuroinflammation can impact glucose regulation so mm -hmm. the and, and back and forth so that's where some of these these uh, ideas that other pathways other than the amyloid beta and, and phosphorylated tau might play an important role do we know anything that's not proprietary about the relationship between amyloid beta and phosphorylated tau and glucose dysregulation well, we know that, so, and again, we haven't got into the details of this. There's multiple cells in the brain. One of the cells of interest in terms of inflammation are called microglia. Mm -hmm. These microglia, think of them as sort of the immune surveyors, much like what you have macrophages and monocytes in your body. They're mm -hmm. the ones in the brain. They're sort of the sentinels. Mm -hmm. When something goes wrong in the brain, a foreign pot body comes in, they're the ones that are alerted. So what happens for them anyway is... Uh, Levels of amyloid beta can trigger their so-called activation, where mm -hmm. they become more pro-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. They produce cytokines, like the cytokines we talked about when we were talking about COVID, mm -hmm. and these cytokines can then impact glucose uptake. They can stimulate an increase in phosphorylated tau. Mm -hmm. And again, think of this not simply as a linear pathway. Some of this is a vicious cycle, where one A begets B, begets C, begets A, and, and then you, right. you ramp it up. Right. I mean, and... Just from an observational perspective of Alzheimer's patients, they generally start slow, and yeah. then they do begin to spiral, and then eventually very quickly. 
You know, like they hit a point and almost like they fall off of a cliff, just observationally. Um, and that could be that vicious cycle at play, you know, and like I said, yeah. it's very anecdotal. Yeah. Um, but observationally, it does seem to happen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, neurometabolism being dysregulated seems like a like a, like a hypothesis that's being chased by multiple companies now. Um, what could be done at an early age to begin to say, I'm going to do my best to avoid this disease outside of genetic risk factors. Cause we know that having a double APOE4 allele right. gives you, was it a 50% greater right. odds? It's, it's a significantly well, say, greater so, odds. And, and what does that tie in with APOE4? Actually inflammation. And lipids. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, so that, that is one of the reasons why, you know, people say, wait a minute, APOE4 lipids, are lipids involved? And again, you know, scientists will take something and run with it and, and usually build on that, but you're absolutely right. So in thinking about that, there's, um, uh, genetic factors and, and, right. and, and that's what I'm saying avoiding the genetic factors because yeah, those, you, you those are unavoidable I mean, you're dealt a hand you're dealt right so you're talking more what can you do to decrease the odds that you will get an Alzheimer's and something else I, I want to stress Alzheimer's is a disease of aging right so it's it's uh, uh, a disease where unlike childhood um, diabetes type 1 you know, that happens when you're young, uh, uh, leukemia in children, that happens when you're young. But this is a disease that, as you get older, the likelihood goes up. And right. some of the, the same hallmarks that are thought to drive aging are also involved in driving Alzheimer's. Which would want to be inflammation. Inflammation. Um, dysregulation of metabolism. <laughs> exa exactly right. In fact, some of the papers that we pulled out um, are actually talking about the uh, GERO science, study of aging mm -hmm. and Alzheimer's disease drug development. So many people are looking at if you have a drug that can slow aging, uh, in theory, that should slow Alzheimer's and the reverse of that. If you have a mm -hmm. way to prevent Alzheimer's from forming and it doesn't happen to you much uh, older, you will live more healthy and longer. So there's a tie-in with aging and Alzheimer's and, and right. longevity. Right. Now, it, it's interesting, too, that, that some people never seem to experience any sort of dementia issues at all and then other people like develop them in their late 60s or maybe early 70s and you know it, it it's it's so unknown it doesn't seem like you can you can tie it in to any particular lifestyle unless it's like a very but hard what would lifestyle. be interesting and, and maybe something we'll eventually get to are predictive things so in other words are there ways because usually it's the disease that man unless it's early onset and that and that's usually genetically driven mm -hmm. if it's a later stage disease and even early on you know i forget my keys all the time does that mean i have alzheimers no probably not right. but but we don't know exactly when it starts but it's for so people that are 65 and older that's when they need to start worrying mm -hmm. but what if there were something that you could do that would tell you other than genetics, mm -hmm. we've seen this biomarker, and that suggests that maybe you, you're going to get Alzheimer's 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So that's a key area of research, yeah. because the next step that you've sort of alluded to is how can we slow or reduce the probability? Well, so of prediction's Alzheimer's. one thing, but if you don't have a solution, even if you have a prediction, why ha why worry? Because I think there is a solution. So this is a paper that came out. It's uh, Multimodal Precision Prevention, a New Direction in Alzheimer's Disease. And it was a trial that was done in um, Finland, actually, originally. And what it does is it ties together, together the best approaches we have now for longevity. And that includes what? 
exercise, mm-hmm. diet, minimize your yeah. risk factor, mm-hmm. don't smoke, uh, uh, good nutrition, right. sleep well, socialize, minimize your cardiovascular risk, keep your blood pressure under control. They did a trial and showed that that actually reduced the prevalence of, of Alzheimer's. Well, keep your blood sugar under control. Yes. All, all yeah. of the things that you would think of, and we, we've talked to this before, it's the four horsemen of, of death. And remember, if you die, that means you didn't live long. So clearly that killed your longevity chance. Right. Alzheimer's is one of the horsemen in this. So if you maintain some of the other ones, because they're all connected. If you if you have diabetes, you're more mm-hmm. likely to get Alzheimer's. If you have cardiovascular disease, you're more likely to get Alzheimer's. If you have metabolic syndrome or you're overweight, you're more likely to get Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. So if you target each of these at the same time through interventional stuff, we're not talking, you know, you got to go on a starvation diet for 10 years straight. No, just things that are sort of common sense. But in this study, they showed it was effective. And what they're suggesting Mm is, because we're sort of alluding to multiple ways to treat. How about multiple ways to treat and prevent? So in this study, they're using metformin, Mm -hmm. which is actually a drug used in diabetes. And they're combining that with lifestyle changes. So I think you're going to see multiple approaches. And remember, uh, our country and most Western countries are sort of hung up on the idea that well, I'm just going to walk around and, oh, no, I have cancer. Is there a drug for that? Well, maybe a better approach would be why don't you walk around and try to prevent all the things that might cause cancer yeah. or neurodegeneration or cardiovascular disease. Do that, and then if you do get it and it's caught early, then do a drug intervention at the same time. I think yeah. all of this needs to be locked together. It's Yeah, I mean, it's not just a one-shot approach. No. You can't just, like, you know, spend 10 minutes in the sun every day and hope to be better. So, you know... Like that's what I was going to get at. Reduce inflammation levels in your body seems to be a, a reasonable way to do it. And, Absolutely. You know, and that's through eating a better diet, you know, actually exercising and maintaining a healthy metabolism. All the things you said, getting enough sleep, getting enough recovery. Reduce your stress levels. Reduce your stress levels. I mean, there's, we know, like we know like what needs to be done in order to re- reduce the risk factors but it's not that easy to implement into a lifestyle. It's, and and that's, that's the key. So um, they're gonna, some people just don't care or they're, they're, they're not familiar, they're not uh, brought up in a, in a way that maybe we were brought up in terms of maintaining a, a healthy approach to life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those are the people that, that we have to reach out to and, and try to encourage them to, to, it doesn't mean you can't have a Big Mac now and then, but don't use that as a primary source of your Right, yeah, your nutrition. primary source of protein yeah. is Big Mac is right. probably not a good uh, no. long-term outlook as far as that's concerned. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating disease, and, you know, it, we don't even know how it works. We don't know anything. Nope. Uh, we, we know very little about it. Um, when did, you said, so 1909, is that when you said? 1906. 1906. When, when it was first described by. It was when Dr. Alzheimer. Doctor, I forget his first name. It might have been Bob. Dr. Alls, he, Bob yeah, Bob, I like that. He, he's when he discovered it. So we assume that it was prevalent before then, or is this a, 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 a well, you know, it's hard to say because, uh, again, the the gold standard for diagnosis after death is to cut open the head, section the brain, and then mm-hmm. do histochemistry or pathology using a microscope. So. Yeah, I can't tell you exactly. I mean, that's when he named um, the disease itself in terms of, of uh, people suffering from that de- form of dementia. And that's mm-hmm. the other thing we need. Mm-hmm. Alzheimer's is one of uh, a disease of dementia. It's the most prevalent. It's 60 or 70% of those 
dementia-type diseases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are others, and that's why, again, historically, Alzheimer's was diagnosed as, well, it's not this, okay, well, it's not that, it's not, there must be Alzheimer's. Yeah. That's not really the best way to ha- have someone selected into a clinical trial. With so the difference being the biomarkers. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. So now instead of being, well, it can't, it, it's the one that fell out of the net. Now there are better markers to say, no, this is definitive. This person does have mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. And now mm-hmm. you're going to drive, and, and you mentioned personalized, well, I mentioned personalized medicine. Those are going to be key because if you don't have the potential targets that this therapy is going to drive towards, if you don't have that, and that's not what's striving your disease, you're not going to be impacted by the therapeutics. And if you just do a random willy-nilly, you know, clinical trial, you know how many drugs might have been thrown out because maybe they only impacted 5%? Yeah. But those 5% may have had that target. So well, and that's, like, that gets to the point we talked about earlier. Yeah. There's a natural bias in the development towards what works. And if, like, a specific genotype is the most reactive to a set of drugs or to a receptor, then that's what gets developed for. That's exactly right. So you're going to see not only, and and some of the stuff as a company we're learning too, is um, FDA is almost insisting now that if you're going to do a clinical trial, even an early phase one clinical trial, what biological marker are you going to use to assess on-target effectiveness of that therapeutic? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily to say, oh, it's efficacious, but simply what is the marker that you would use to select that patient, and what is the marker you use to show that the drug is actually working at some level before you look at cognition or something? So this is very volatile. In fact, I think we will do. Personalized medicine is, is, um, you know, if one can imagine, and, and I don't know if we'll ever get there, but we're heading towards that where... Uh, if you look at uh, cancer, let's just say breast cancer, there's no two breast cancers that are identically alike, and yet historically we've treated it with obviously surgery, but also chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. There's some targeted agents, but they're not always effective. So really what you'd want to have is to be able to look at someone's disease and personalize it using proteomics and genomics, et cetera, and mm-hmm. say, here's the three drugs that we would pick from the shelf that are predicted to target your disease. Right. That's where we're going. And then the better you get at that, the higher the, 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 the survival rate. The higher the survival rate, absolutely. Ultimately, but, yeah. but again, we talked about the healthcare system. This is not inexpensive no. to, to do all this. So. Right, and we're already yeah. the most yeah. expensive Wait. healthcare system in the world. Yeah. So, yeah. Right, so it's... And, 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 and one thing I want to bring about the antibodies, and, and again, I don't want to minimize amyloid beta. It's, I, I personally don't think it's the key driving force for Alzheimer's. We, we sort of already talked sure. about this. But it is a breakthrough, and the, and the data does look real. But what are some of the problems? Have you, have you heard of some of the problems of using this antibody? Yeah, but I forgot what they were. All right. Well, one is cost. Sure. One is you have to go in and it's an IV injection. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people obviously... I hate needles, so people prefer pills. Mm-hmm. The other one is, and the acronym is ARIA, it's a, a blood it's, it's blood in the brain. It's a bleed oh, in the right. brain, mm-hmm. and that can actually lead to stroke and death. In fact, um, lecanonib has, a, or, or is it donanonib, but one of them, maybe both of them, a couple of patients have already died. So that's another risk mm-hmm. factor, right? Yeah. So it's expensive, mm-hmm. very expensive. It's IV. You're talking about proteins that have to, Right, antibodies or proteins, they have to go into your circulation, get into your brain, pass into your brain, bind to the amyloid beta, pull it back out of the brain. That's a long process. So obviously, it is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy that those drugs are available because, you know, if, if you had Alzheimer's, better than somebody can say, yeah, somebody mm-hmm. can say, hey, listen, I decreased the rate at which I'm losing it. Yeah. That's not a bad I mean, thing. and that's what a lot of, lot of, lot of treatment is. It's 
increase in survival time or increase in, I mean, basically, that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And so, I mean, that's what you're getting here. We know it's a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. It is. It's not a curable disease currently. And so what we're trying to do is ex extend the lifespan associated with the diagnosis. And if, if that's the near-term goal, then we can say that the monoclonal antibodies do that. They, 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 they certainly do that. So, um, and, and you brought this up. There's, there's different stages to Alzheimer's. There's the early symptomology that's absent, but you're predicted. There's also the first stage where it's MCT, where you have mild cognitive problems. Um, that's really where these drugs are targeted. And so keep, people need to keep that in mind too. So if you're already late stage and it's terrible to have someone you love late stage, um, there's not a whole lot people can do. So most right. of the therapies are targeted to either you don't have it yet, but you predicted it. Yeah, MCI. MCI is like the current target, mm -hmm. which is mild cognitive impairment, mm -hmm. because it seems to be early enough to actually be able to, to modify the, the disease. That, that's, that's where people are, are yep. driving now towards. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing people have to remember is it's not simply um, that the patient uh, suffers and loses dementia. They lose control of bodily functions. They're basically turned in, I hate to say this, into a vegetable, yeah. and they end up dying. We're talking about the, the lifespan is not much more than, on average, eight years after being diagnosed with right. Alzheimer's. So right. it's, it's, a, it's a death sentence. And it's a long eight years. It's a long eight years for yeah. caregivers, for the, the hospital systems, healthcare systems. Yeah. It's, it's, a, long, it's a long eight years. I, I'm so. really glad that it seems to become, be becoming more and more of a, a priority for NIH and the you know in in getting funding out there because you have to cast an incredibly wide net in order to actually begin to hone in on what may be an actual disease modifying therapeutic that makes an impact so and you brought something up interesting so in fact what is you know in thinking about it at first it's like it's wonderful so the number of 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 uh, agents that are in phase two are almost triple the number that are in phase three so there's mm -hmm. like a bolus mm -hmm. that are that are coming up What's the biggest problem now? It's not so much as new therapies, it's getting patients, yeah. patient uh, accrual. In fact, they're predicting that some of the phase two studies that are going to phase three may take a year or more to accrue patients. Just to, to just to recruit. And Even though there's millions of people, I mean, accrual of patients, mm -hmm. getting patients into accepting into a clinical trial, that's, that's a long process, especially if you put selection criteria, inclusion, exclusion, all that. Mm -hmm. So- And you're talking about 300 patients? In a phase two? You're to, well, yeah, so right now in terms of, if you look at the clinical trials all told, phase two and three, I think they total up to 41,000 patients. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now one would think, well, if there's six million people with Alzheimer's in the US, how hard can that be? It's a lot harder than you think. Well, first of all, you gotta live close to a, a site, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you have to be in their selection criteria, which can be incredibly detailed, because yep. once again, they're trying to recruit the perfect patient for their drug. They want to test the efficacy of the drugs. So yeah. You're going to have to have somebody as a potential target. And you got to go in maybe weekly, maybe more often than that, to actually be checked on, make sure that you're you're taking the, you, whether it's your the actual drug or the placebo or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting an injection, then that's really difficult. If you're having to be scanned, if you're having to be any of the, it's, it's onerous on the patient. And the other thing too is, is uh, and again, it complicates the matter, it's often, uh, predominantly multi-institutional and also multi-country. So you can mm -hmm. have trials going on for a particular drug in multiple countries, in multiple institutions in any given country. The paperwork involved, it's not really paperwork, but but the mm -hmm. logistics of running those trials cleanly and smoothly, that, that, takes, a, that takes a lot of effort. Is, is this, is Alzheimer's disease 
a uniquely North American issue, or is this a worldwide problem? You know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I looked at a map, and this is something maybe we should look up, but I, I saw um, a basically per 100,000 who had Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. North America was red and Africa was not. Mm-hmm. So if I'm using red in the right context, that means Alzheimer's. <laughs> now, of course, there may be a lot of reasons why. So sure. there's rural areas in Africa it might be hard to say, you have Alzheimer's? Right, so I don't know if it's a Western type yeah, yeah. disease, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, cigarette smoking obviously originally was a Western style disease, but that's interesting. So, I mean, that's something we should. I mean, I know we into. we definitely know, and we've looked at, and I don't want to get into detail about like other products because we, you know, we have to be careful about what we say. But I know that we've looked at, you know, different regions of the world, and we've seen without a doubt the Mediterranean does definitely has a lower incidence of the disease, yep. um, and there's areas of Japan. They have the lower lower incidence of the, the of the disease. I mean, obviously, diet factors into that. Lifestyle factors into that. Uh, social criteria factor into that. I mean, we've seen that with uh, in the Mediterranean and even in Japan. They seem to be, the the cultures seem to be a lot more social. They don't self isolate as they age, and that probably plays a huge role in in developing the disease and it going on. Because if you quit using your brain, it's going to to begin to atrophy you know it's it's funny the the adage that people say that your brain is a muscle obviously it's not a muscle but but it is true so one of the things in the in the paper i mentioned about the multimodal uh, uh, approach to treating or preventing alzheimer's includes using your brain more that Mm -hmm. means uh, mental puzzles that means chess things anything that engages your uh, brain in a reasoning fashion in fact some of the you know the if you look at what one of the first things that go it's is executive function. I mean, mm-hmm. the last thing that goes usually is um, you can't walk anymore, you mm-hmm. can't control. Just motor it. skills. Yeah, motor, motor skills motor are sort of the last. But early mm-hmm. on, it's little things like, what did I just say? Mm-hmm. No, really, what did I just say? Right. No. Oh, you're asking me? No, I'm asking oh, me. sorry, I wasn't listening. It's kind of a joke. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally, I, I, it, it is. It's something. So if you don't use your brain, even just for conversation, then you, yeah, it like it begins to atrophy or it begins to just deteriorate, especially at an elevated age. And so, yeah, I mean that could play as big of a role as anything else. So, and and the reason that is, and maybe people don't understand this because you're you're brought, uh, brought up with the idea that you know you you grow a number of neurons grow and you have a limited number of neurons. It's not exactly true. One of the key things and one of the targets now is a thing called neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. where your brain uh, uh, processes information, et cetera, and thoughts and whatnot to neural connections. So mm-hmm. it's not just like one string. You have neural transmitters, but you can also rewire. So those neurons that fire together stay together, right? And that idea is prevalent in children learning language. Exa- exactly right. You're never too old to, you may not process information as quickly, but you're always able to improve areas in, in, of, of, of your brain that are involved in memory and cognitive function. Mm-hmm. So that's something people need to realize. And, and I, you know, again, I, I don't want to harp on people not taking responsibility, but there are a lot of things you can do that we've alluded to, simple things like exercise, do aerobic exercise three or four days a week. Mm-hmm. Don't, if you smoke, don't, don't smoke. Take care of nutrition, sleep well. Socialization is huge. If you look at the countries you've alluded to, if you look at Italy and you look at Greece, you look at Japan, what are some of the things they do? These people, they have families that go back generations and they interact with each other. They have fun. They have, mm-hmm. a, they have an enjoyable life, meaningful, impactful life. Yeah. So all of these things contribute. So don't just hope one day 
um, that, you know, I know I'm going to get Alzheimer's. I hope there's a pill. You know, maybe. Yeah, but don't count on it. Don't count yeah. on it. All right, let's wrap it up. All right. All right, so that was a high-level, that is a high-level discussion on Alzheimer's disease. You know, we could probably go on a lot, a lot, a lot. It really would be cool if we ever got some questions to kind of begin to answer questions and, and, and deep dive into different things. That would be great. But, you know, it's, it's something we think about daily. It's something that we've spent years researching. Um, our company's received the support of the National Institute of, on Aging to develop some of our drugs. Um, we've, uh, you know, we have a, a, what we like to think is a decent understanding, but we're a long way off from fully understanding the disease. We hope to, you know, really make an impact long term. Um, so, you know, hopefully that'll kind of give like an, an overview and kind of put some brackets on what Alzheimer's disease is. Uh, really quickly, I just want to mention that OleoLive, you know, we developed drugs, but we also spent some time and developed a dietary supplement for brain support, uh, for heart health, and for joint uh, health. Uh, it's based on the Mediterranean diet. It is oleocanthal extracted from extra virgin olive oil. There's an awful lot of research on the benefits of oleocanthal. And uh, we thought it was too good to not put into a capsule and make available to everyone because the only place you'll find oleocanthal naturally is in small quantities in extra virgin olive oil. So you can find it here in consistent dosages. It's called Oligen, and you can find it at oleocanthal.co. But for now, I think that's good. Good? I think that's great. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone.